Uh, the, the most important thing about death and the afterlife is that whatever you think about it, that we're ready for it, we're prepared for it. Mm. So that if death comes suddenly or slowly, whenever it comes, uh, we know that we're right with God. We know that we're peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got that assurance that, that, that God will, will take us safe into his everlasting arms. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. Into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 60. I interview Paul Williamson about death and the afterlife. We get into ghosts, hell, near-death experiences, and what the Bible has to say about it all. So, with no further ado, let's get weird. Welcome to the show. Um, all right, so why don't we just start just by uh, hearing a little bit about yourself. Tell us uh, kind of how you grew up and how you came to know Christ. Okay. Um, I was born and bred in Northern Ireland. Um, I brought up really in a church-going family. They weren't uh, Christian in the evangelical sense, but they uh, would have attended church uh, every week and sent us to Sunday school, uh, my brother and I. Uh, I would also have gone to sort of little gospel meetings and so on uh, for kids. So I think I, I knew the gospel um, from a fairly early age, um, even though my parents weren't born-again Christians. Um, uh, we certainly weren't, my brother and I. Um, I think around the age of 10, uh, I went to uh, uh, really a tent uh, good news meeting, uh, good news Bible clubs there, I think you do. Uh, so it was like a good news Bible club, and I went to that, and uh, at the end of the week, I professed faith. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the guy, uh, best friend, he professed faith as well. But I went back home and told his mother, uh, his mother said to him, well, you soon grow out of that nonsense. And unfortunately, mm. he did. And unfortunately, so did I. Um, mm. uh, so for most of my early teenage years, uh, I lived a fairly sort of rebellious life. My father left home when I was about 14. And um, so I didn't really have a, a strong um, parental hand to keep me right. And instead of sort of supporting my mother, uh, I had a difficult time for her. I physically took advantage and lived the life of a rebel. Uh, but some of my friends uh, that I ran about with um, became Christians um, uh, probably in my late teens and I could see the tremendous change in their lives and I think God used that really to, to challenge me because I knew exactly what they were like because uh, I was like them hmm. and I could see the amazing grace of God in their lives and just the transformation and that spoke to me uh, one night uh, I decided I wouldn't go to the uh, the pub, which is what really I did at the weekend, I just sort of worked during the week and then went to the pub uh, at the weekend and, and used up my money on, on alcohol. Uh, but uh, one Friday night I, I was sitting in the pub and uh, I looked at the people around me and thought, what, what a miserable looking bunch they are. And somebody dawned on me and I'm one of them. Hmm. So I, I'd never done this before, I just got up and walked home and uh, on the Saturday night I refused to, to go out. So my mother, who at that stage um, had given her life to Christ, uh, probed a bit to find out what was going on, and um, we ended up basically getting down on our knees and 
she led me to faith in Jesus. So I'm wow. a person, person in Jesus. Uh, she had kept praying for me uh, despite the obnoxious way that I behaved. Um, but God transformed my life. Um, and we started, I started going to a Baptist church. I've been brought up Presbyterian, but um, unfortunately the church I was brought up in, the, the minister didn't really preach the gospel. Apparently mm. preached the gospel really well, funerals, but not the rest of the time. Uh, so I started going with my pals to the, the Baptist church that they went to, and I, I realized within six weeks I was going to grow. Uh, I needed to go to the Baptist church because that's where I was going to get fed and uh, sort of discipled as a Christian. So I went there, and the, the pastor there, um, they, they ran all kinds of uh, different activities for youth, and um, they got me to testify very early on, and uh, then he even invited me to, to preach uh, in the uh, evening service. And it just steadily encouraged me really to, to, to use the gifts that I had, and I probably didn't realize at the time and encouraged me to think about it going into full-time Christian ministry. Hmm. Uh, he himself had wanted to go to Bible college and get trained, um, uh, but they, they had rejected him uh, yeah. uh, because he wasn't sort of academic enough, hmm. uh, but that didn't put him off, encouraging me to, to go and, and get fully trained for uh, Christian ministry. So yeah. uh, end up, uh, I gave up the business that I had and... Um, uh, I went into uh, full-time theological education, um, intending to become a Baptist minister. Uh, at the end of five years, I became a Baptist minister, uh, but I also started teaching in the college uh, on my day off, something for which my wife has never really forgiven me, mm-hmm. uh, using my day off to teach. Yeah. Uh, at the end of three years, I thought, I can't keep this doing going. Uh, my wife was probably telling me the same, I can't keep you know, working 24-7. Uh, so I decided uh, I'd um, uh, teach full-time. Uh, I was really interested in keeping the, the college conservative evangelical, and um, I think it was really the Old Testament position I was going to possibly go to someone who wasn't conservative evangelical, so I thought I, I should really um, apply for that job, and I did. And, um, so I worked there for, uh, I think it was about nine years, during which I got a PhD, uh, and then I got a telephone call out of the blue one day from um, the principal of Moore College here in Australia, who thought I might be interested in a job. And uh, quite honestly, I wasn't uh, ever intending leaving Ireland. We were quite happy there. Um, but he said, well, if you we won't be interested, I'll come up and have a chat to you, because he was in Dublin. So I said, well, you might as well come, and uh, we'll have a chat. So uh, he persuaded us to come for a three-year appointment. So we, we kept our jobs in Ireland, and my wife and I and our two young boys uh, came across to Australia for what we thought was three years. Uh, but uh, we're still here. We've uh, been here now for 20, 22 years. Um, during that time, my, my boys grew up. Uh, they made professions of faith when they were children, but uh, I think today one of them would still claim to be a Christian, but uh, he doesn't really live a Christian life. Uh, the other one seems to have uh, little or no interest in Christianity whatsoever, which is uh, unfortunate. But just as my mother kept praying for me, and my wife and I keep praying for uh, our boys, mm-hmm. we know that uh, uh, God and His grace uh, will uh, 
Amen. Um, wow. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I love that story. Um, so tell me, how is it that you came about, you know, we're talking about, uh, your book, Death and Afterlife, uh, tonight. So how was it that you, you came about writing that book? That's a great question. Um, I teach Old Testament uh, at college, and um, uh, at more College, um, every year they have an annual college lectures, and one year it's an international speaker, and the other year uh, it'll be a, a member of faculty. Uh, so sooner or later you get asked to um, do the annual college lectures, and um, I got asked to do it in 2002 actually do the talks in 2016. So I scratched my head thinking, what am I going to do these annual college lectures on? Um, and I've always been interested in personal eschatology. Uh, one of the first books I read uh, when I became a Christian uh, was Hendrickson's Death and the Afterlife, hmm. which I find uh, really, really interesting because um, he covers so much ground, so many very interesting questions that he uh, addresses. Uh, and I thought uh, I'd like to revisit that particular issue and see you know what, what are the issues that people are talking about today uh, and uh, what does the Bible have to say about them uh, so I thought that would be a good thing to, to, to look at uh, so I preferred five talks really uh, on death and the afterlife with an introductory talk uh, at the very start uh, and that then turned into uh, uh, death and the afterlife the book um, nice. I said it to, to John Carson um, who's the editor of the series I think it was a Thursday night, at, just before I went to bed, and I got up early the next morning at uh, uh, six o'clock in the morning, and there was an e- email reply from Don Carson who had read the book and wanted to do oh, wow. the series, and I thought to myself, I wish I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, that, that's 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 great. Um, yeah, well, I think that's cool that uh, that this was something that was like a, a personal interest to you. Um, hopefully, we have a lot of people listening that uh, feel the same way. Um, I certainly feel like it's one of those topics. Um, it's so core and so important. Um, you know, it's it's almost a, a lead-in for for a lot of people as far as evangelism. The question of what happens to you when you die. Um, you know, it's something that everyone ponders at, at some point, uh, and there's, you know, there's answers in the Bible, but there's 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 also still a lot of mystery uh, there as well, um, and uh, you know, I like how you explored, uh, you know, all different aspects of of death and afterlife, um, from multiple perspectives. Um, so I want to start by talking about the intermediate state. Um, so I think most people, you know, listening are familiar, and this is kind of our concept of what happens after we die uh, is the intermediate state. Um, yet that has not always been um, kind of our concept that we have of it. Um, so um, can you explain, you know, what is the intermediate state and, and you know, how has that changed over time? the concept of it and our understanding of it. Uh, let me just state, I suppose, just really a, a, 
sometimes referred to as the interim state, but the, the, you know, what happens when you die, you know, after you die, uh, do you continue to exist in some shape or form uh, between death and resurrection? Because as Christians, we, we, we believe uh, that we are going to be raised on the last day, uh, but what is going to happen to us in that period between our personal death and the, the last day of resurrection? Um, when I was a, a young Christian, um, I think all the books that I read at that stage certainly were, were teaching an intermediate state, and I, and I just it became to me just part of you know evangelical doctrine that there was a, an intermediate state. So between death and resurrection, you either went to uh, be with Christ in heaven, uh, or uh, you ended up in uh, uh, some form of hell straight away. Um, Whenever I started um, uh, looking at uh, the sort of these lectures, uh, I realised that there was quite a bit of debate nowadays about the intermediate state, mainly because um, when I was in college, you know, we used to debate whether uh, a human was uh, made up of uh, body, soul, and spirit, or just body and soul, or body, soul, stroke, spirit, or soul and spirit different, or just the same thing. Yeah. Whereas more recently, the debate is whether humans are um, uh, dichotomous, which would be body and some kind of uh, non-material part, just like a soul or a spirit, uh, or uh, if uh, humans uh, are just a, a, a single entity. Uh, um, so are we made up of two parts? one of which can survive death, uh, or are we made up of only really one part, uh, and that part, when it dies, it dies and remains dead uh, until uh, the death of resurrection. So that, that's really what got me thinking uh, about discussing the, the intermediate state, because I wanted to see what biblical evidence is there really to support the idea of an intermediate state, uh, and what that obviously also means you need to look at what evidence there is in the Bible for uh, what are called dualism, uh, a dualistic sort of uh, dichotomy between body and soul. Uh, so it does the Bible provide evidence that, that we are made of two parts, at least body and soul, uh, or is a more biblical way of looking at things that we're, we're actually just sort of uh, a, a body spirit thing. Yeah. We're alive, and when we die, we cease to exist at all uh, altogether. Um, so there's not an awful lot uh, I discovered. Uh, there's not nowhere near as much evidence as I was sort of uh, thinking there would be in the Bible for sort of an interim or intermediate state. Um, yet I think there, there is sufficient evidence to, to, to make it a, a viable uh, doctrine. Uh, so, uh, well, um, some today would argue that there is no intermediate state when you die, you just basically you're dead. Uh, and that your next sort of conscious moment after death is the, the last day of resurrection. Right. Uh, whereas um, there are texts, not that many, but there are enough texts to, to warrant belief in uh, basically even after death, we, we exist in some sphere. Um, so the believer, uh, Christian, uh, Paul certainly seems to talk about being absent from the body and present with the Lord. Um, so 
that's the sort of the, the text that most would use to to support sort of a, an interim state for Christians. Um, there's not as much in terms of an interim state for uh, non-Christians. Um, probably the the most obvious text um, that people point to would be Jesus' um, story of the rich man Lazarus, mm, yeah. uh, where uh, both of them die, uh, and it's clearly before the last day of resurrection because the the, the rich guy. Uh, talks about his brothers. They want someone to, to be sent to warn his brothers about uh, this terrible place that he's in. Um, but both the, the rich man and Lazarus are in an intermediate state. Lazarus is with Abraham, uh, presumably in the celestial abode, whereas um, the rich man is in hell and is in torment. Um, so that, that's what I mean by an intermediate state. Yeah. Yeah, and of course there's the example of the thief on the cross uh, or Jesus said that uh, today you will be with me in paradise. And so, um, yeah, you, you know, uh, that was just kind of always my concept um, of life after death um, based off of, of those verses. Um, and I never really heard of soul sleep and probably till a few years ago, I didn't realize that that was that that was a doctrine that, uh, that some believe that, you know, you're basically just asleep. Um, and it certainly is a, there's a lot of old Testament verses that could, uh, you could allude to that. Um, so I think, you know, perhaps the, the, Bible certainly, the Bible certainly uses sleep as a metaphor for death. Yeah. And the question then is, you know, do you push it more literally? Um, but, uh, like the, the people I'm talking about today don't wouldn't believe in soul sleep so much as we don't have a soul, so there's nothing to sleep. Right. Hmm. So wow. it's basically yeah. they're thinking of non-existence really between that yeah. period of if you die today and Jesus doesn't come for another hundred years, you have basically spent a hundred years out of existence. Mm. Um, mm. Wow, think, yeah. Yeah, which... Yeah, like yourself, Samuel, like, I, I, I always just assumed that Christians believed in an interim state, and that's what sure. the Bible taught. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why I, I sort of wanted to look to see, is there enough evidence in the Bible to support what I thought was the, you know, the, the typical uh, Christian doctrine? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it was. <laughs> I, I think, I, I, I agree. Um, that, that's interesting, yeah, I... I I do remember reading reading that uh, now. Yeah, that concept is basically not existing whatsoever. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I do want to ask about the the rich man and, and Lazarus because that is a um, something that it's um, a, a proof text that's used uh, for for several different doctrines. Um, some would say that it's a it's a parable, and some would say that that Lazarus was a you know a historic uh, person. Uh, what's your take on that? Um, c- certainly, in Jesus' parables, he doesn't normally name anyone, so that that, that would make it stand out as different from most of Jesus' parables because it doesn't usually have a like he'll talk about there was a certain man. Yeah. But he doesn't actually name people, yeah. and that's why I think, I think that's the main reason that people have suggested that uh, it's more than a parable. Um, uh, again, um, I used to think that I used to agree with that. I'm not too sure today. I think I, I, I'm quite happy to say that it's a parable yeah. rather than actually a, a, you know a, sort of a, a biography. 
if you like. Um, but uh, I suppose that the more significant question really is whether or not um, Jesus meant us to take the story, uh, these details of the story, meant us to understand that as um, a true account of what happens after we die. Right. And some today would argue that Jesus wasn't really telling it as a true account. He was telling it as if, I suppose a modern preacher said, um, imagine someone dies and they're standing at the pearly gates and St. Peter asks them, why should I let you into heaven? Um, none of us, if we heard a preacher saying that, would imagine that, would take the details of us, that sort of concept literally. Yeah. Like St. Peter's not going to be standing at the pearly gates asking people for a pass to get into heaven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just a story to, to illustrate a, a truth. Uh, and some would take the, the parable of the rich man Lazarus in that sort of um, way that it's really just a story that Jesus told um, to illustrate a truth. And some would say the truth that he's trying to illustrate has got nothing to do with eschatology at all. Right, yeah. Um, my problem with that is that if Jesus is telling that story and using those images uh, the way that he does, um and he doesn't intend us to draw any eschatology from it, um, we would have no way of knowing that. And Jesus, so Jesus seems to be endorsing some beliefs that would have been fairly common uh, in the first century. Um, and therefore, I think it would be very naive of Jesus to, to use that story as an illustration uh, and not intend his readers to actually accept some aspects of it to be uh, a true account uh, right things are like yeah yeah it's really interesting um because i think some people would favor um the historical view because they want to use that as a proof text for a certain doctrine um about what happens to you after you die and then some people on the opposite end would would rather see it as a parable for the opposite reason to say that we can't really use this as a proof text for what happens after you die. Um, yeah. So it, it's one of those things that's, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting um, sort of think about. Um, certainly, you know, we would look at the point of the story. It, it doesn't seem to be, the point doesn't seem to be um, necessarily about uh, what happens when you die. But like you said, clearly he was using, um, you know this this illustration, or we, we we see we have kind of two different uh, areas of you know um, you know what we might call of a uh, an, an afterworld or uh, you know yep. Hades or a, you know abode of the dead um, sort of concept that they they would have been familiar with um, yep. the listener the, uh, of that time so. I was planning on getting this it's later. Because you, you wouldn't want to try and apply all the details of the story literally. Right. Because if you played it all literally, then in this afterlife, there's going to be communication between people in one place and people in another place. And uh, I don't think the Bible really teaches that. So, uh, so there, there are some facets of the story that don't seem to be a true representation of um, the afterlife. Sure. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, and a lot of people would say, okay, th clearly, um, 
the rich man was not able to communicate with those that are, are, are living, right? Uh, so they would they would use that to say, um, you know, this is is to mean that there's there's no such thing as ghosts because because of this you know, this this example here in, in the Bible. So I wanted to ask about that. Um, I think you talked about. Um, uh, the Witch of Endor, if I if, if I'm yeah. correct, that's almost one of the only like clear examples of where we see like like a ghost story um, in Scripture. We 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 hear references to ghosts maybe in a couple other places. Um, but what's what is your take on on ghosts? <laughs> well, whenever I came to more college, one of my colleagues here. Um, um, I found out that he, he believed in ghosts and I thought he was nuts. Um, uh, but I've come to see that there's a lot more evidence for his uh, uh, position than I, I once did. Um, are there such a thing as ghosts? I suppose that the question is, if, if there is no intermediate state whatsoever, then ghosts are ruled out. Right. Uh, there, can't, there can't be ghosts if there's no intermediate state. Because uh, so in other words, if if you die and you're dead and that's it until the day of resurrection, yeah. there's no place for ghosts. Sure. Uh, um, but if if you do believe in an intermediate state, uh, that does allow room for the idea of ghosts. But I suppose what do we mean by ghosts and what type of interaction can we have with ghosts? Um, I think in the New Testament there are examples where. Um, some kind of um, belief in ghosts is reflected. So the, the disciples obviously saw Jesus at times and thought he was a ghost. Yeah. And um, Jesus' response was not, don't be stupid, there's no such thing as ghosts. His response was really, ghosts don't have flesh and bones like right. I do. Right. Uh, which is a strange response. Because <laughs> you'd be expecting... Um, I'm just saying, don't be so silly, there's no such thing as ghosts. But he says, I can prove that I'm not a ghost because, you know, I've got a body. Right, yeah. That, that implies that, that ghosts don't have bodies. Um, again, whenever the, um, when Peter was in prison in Acts and uh, he was under um, sentence of execution, uh, whenever he was let out of jail, um, they came knocking at the door. Um, they thought it was his, his ghost, his spirit. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, the Pharisees, the Pharisees would have believed in spirits, i.e. ghosts, uh, and the resurrection, uh, whereas the Sadducees didn't believe in either. Right. They didn't believe in sort of an afterworld at all, uh, and in terms of date, didn't believe in a resurrection. Um, so I think that there, there are biblical texts that you could use to support the idea of ghosts, but uh, I sort of want to put a, a caveat on that and say that uh, ghosts certainly, if they do exist, uh, I'm not sure what interaction they could have with with living human, human beings, uh, and they certainly couldn't do us any harm. Sure, um, yeah. Um, but... Uh, could, could, could there be such a thing as ghosts? Well, obviously there could if uh, there is a, an intermediate state. Uh, and I suppose when I was doing the lectures, I, I used this illustration. Whenever I, I think it was Elisha in the Old Testament, uh, 
got the servant to 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 see the the, the spiritual world and all the angels that were you know protecting the city at that stage. Um, it was something he couldn't comprehend naturally, but but the, sort of the veil was pulled away, and actually for a moment actually saw the spiritual realm. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if if it's like that for us that that sometimes that sort of um, the curtain, if you like, is pulled back. Uh, momentarily, and people can see sort of uh, uh, like a, uh, another dimension. Sure. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't go to to um, uh, this takeover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a fascinating topic, and um, you know, one that I, I, I you know I could probably dedicate an episode on, and, and it's there's a lot of different takes on it, and I, I sort of. I would say I would agree with with everything that you said. Um, and most of what I kind of hear in Christian circles when you talk about ghosts, um, it's refreshing to hear you say that because a lot of times what you hear is that there's no such thing as ghosts. And like I said, they'll use that verse, um, this, this parable of Lazarus and the rich man, as an example. Um, and then they'll basically attribute any type of ghost activity uh, as as demonic, um, which I think there there may be some some truth to that. Do you, I mean, do you think that uh, a demon could pose as a as a dead loved one in order to you know lead you astray or to deceive you or you know did um, have some sort of uh, nefarious um, reasons behind that? Yeah, but like like the the word for demon in the New Testament. Um, demonia. Uh, it could be argued that, that that word is actually referring not to um, Satan's minions, yeah. demons, likely referring to the spirit world, yeah. ghosts. Um, uh, so, is it, is it possible? Uh, I think the answer has to be. I think my answer would be yes, but I don't think we need to fear ghosts if they, if they do, if they do exist. Uh, I don't think we need to um, feel threatened by them. Uh, sure. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Um, mm. uh, I'm not sure. Like I, like I, when I was sort of doing the study, I, I did come, come across a few people, some of whom I felt were, were seeing people <laughs> who, who claimed to have seen, you know, something you know, that we would call ghostly. Yeah. Um, so I find, I find it difficult, sort of, to to just turn around and say, "Well, that person just imagining that." Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I assume they have had some kind of experience. I'm not dead sure how to explain that experience, but certainly one of the ways you could explain that would be in terms of the, that curtain being just for some reason being blown back, and uh, they get a, a sort of a glimpse into um, the afterlife. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there, there's no shortage of, of, of ghost stories. I mean, almost everyone you meet probably either has a ghost story uh, that they've experienced or they have a loved one or a friend that they know um, that has had, you know, kind of a, a story with the ghost. And, you know, my perspective is uh, talking about the intermediate state, you know, clearly we see we, we obviously know that that God is very aware of what's going on uh, in, in our dimension. Uh, he, 
and he's able to, to interact. Um, we see that with the angels as well, that they, they seem to, to be aware of what's going on with humans. Uh, and if we're with God in the intermediate state, it only seems natural to also draw the conclusion that we would be aware of what was going on here as well. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, as far as how, how they're interacting, um, and in, in, in the old Testament as well, um, you know, it, it seems to be, you know, a practice that's forbidden to contact the dead. Yeah. So it seems a little, um, silly to argue that there's no such thing as ghosts if it's something that they're that you know israelites are instructed not to do not to practice necromancy so it, it um it almost seems yeah, that they're not, they're, not, they're not forbidden because it doesn't work right yeah yeah <laughs> which is quite interesting again and again the like the other nations all seem to have you know a very strong belief in, in what we call ghosts yeah so. yeah absolutely hmm. interesting cool um all right, so let me um, let me ask you another question. I was uh, this is this is one that I have um, really pondered, and I'm not sure how much you touched on it in your book, but you may have a, a little bit. Um, you know, there's almost seems to be a shift in Old Testament theology and New Testament theology um, as far as afterlife, but certainly what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection seemed, do you think that that um, made a, a, a difference between uh, what would happen to a believer or, you know, maybe an, an Israelite that died pre-resurrection and a believer that had died post-resurrection? Is that experience or inter intermediate state? Is that a, is it, what did it something change? Yeah, uh, I'm not not so sure, Samuel. Um, the, the problem I think is that the Old Testament says very very little about it, so yeah. it leaves us very much in the dark, and it's only the New Testament that sort of says more about it. Um, so, like when you ask what happened, to, what happens after death, in terms, if you're just answering our question just from the Old Testament. Uh, I think that the answer that would be given really is that people go to Sheol. Uh, that's, that, that, that's basically what the Old Testament seems to teach, that, that everyone goes to Sheol. Yeah. Uh, because the Old Testament called really of Hades. Um, uh, basically, it's the place of the dead. Uh, but there are a few te texts here and there which sort of seem to suggest something more than that. Uh, so there's a couple in the Psalms where it suggests that uh, certainly for the believer, uh, that the, the will go to be with God, uh, as opposed to just going into this sort of um, netherworld or, or, or Sheol. Um, certainly with the, the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus brought um, immortality uh, and life to light in a way that wasn't true before. Um, Jesus was in his resurrection brought the future forward so his resurrection is really a foretaste of the final resurrection mm. and the guarantee of the final resurrection so um, again think of the conversation that Jesus had with, with um, Mary and Martha uh, uh, in relation to resurrection um, 
they believed in the resurrection as something that was going to happen in the future. Yeah. Uh, and Jesus, uh, you know, brought it forward. I am the resurrection, the life. Anyone who believes me, and so on. So that, that there's life now, mm. and there's resurrection life now. So you can have the if you like, you can have the future now. So the Christian is someone who, if you like, has been raised with Christ. Uh, now, so we, we are in a sense resurrected now, and that we're brought into newness of life, mm. and we will uh, even after even after we die. Um, death is not going to you know, uh, stop us being resurrected like Jesus in the, the fullest sense. Um, but I don't think you get that picture in the Old Testament. So the, the Old Testament, um, the closest you get to it are passages that uh, say the like of Job, where, where Job is sort of saying, if only, if only there were such a thing. Uh, he's not saying, this is hmm. my clear conviction. Right. Uh, interesting when God says to Ezekiel, "Can these dry bones live?" Ezekiel, like if 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 we were standing in Ezekiel's shoes and God had shown us the valley of dry bones and asked us, "Can these dry bones live?" The Christian would say, "Absolutely." Whereas Ezekiel says, "You alone know, Lord." <laughs> so Ezekiel wasn't absolutely sure. Yeah. He didn't have a sure and certain resurrection hope that we do. Uh, so that certainly is a difference that, that Christ's resurrection gives us a sure and certain hope of resurrection that I think Old Testament saints didn't have. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question. So yeah. Um, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think it does. So, so in, in practically speaking, you think that it it, it would have been the the same experience, yet that may not have been revealed uh, as clearly, obviously, as 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 it is for us. Like there's certainly like Daniel 12 does talk about resurrection and uh, as a uh, 25 26 talks about resurrection so there are Old Testament texts that do talk about resurrection but they seem to be referring primarily to um, uh, uh, sort of something something that's going to happen uh, for for some folk as opposed to something that's going to happen for everyone. Mm. Whereas the New Testament, you know, clarifies that, and, and this resurrection is going to happen for, for everyone. Mm. Like Jesus thought that that's, it's not just the righteous that are going to be raised from the dead; it's uh, both the righteous and the wicked are going to be raised from the dead. Right. Wow. Um, so I didn't actually plan on asking this question, um, but something you said re- reminded me of a. Uh, Abraham's bosom. We, you know, we read that, and I think yeah. you know, probably the first time I read that, it really threw me off. I didn't, you know, I didn't really have a concept for it, and I've actually heard different takes on on on, on what that means, Abraham's bosom. Uh, so I'm I'm just curious, uh, you know, what what's your take on on what we should understand uh, that to mean? Well, I, I think it's a it's a it's a metaphor being used for for paradise. Um, so Jesus said to the rich man today, "You will be with me in paradise." Uh, like both in the Old Testament and the New Testamental literature, you get this concept of paradise. Uh, so if you like um, uh, this sort of celestial Eden or this new Eden, uh, where they're going to enjoy this this perfect relationship with God, um, that, that that's a that's a concept. I suppose Abraham uh, is, if you like, the father of faith, the father of the faithful. Uh, uh, and he's, you know, to be said that you're going to be in Abraham's bosom is you're going to be, it's like us saying, we're going to be with Christ. 
so for an Old Testament from an Old Testament perspective, to, to be in Abraham's bosom was to, to was to be in the place uh, of um, harmony and peace with God, so the, the place of paradise. Yeah. Um, so whenever Jesus uses what was it when he's talking about um, Lazarus as in Abraham's bosom, um, uh, so he he's with Abraham, um, and where's Abraham? Abraham is in the place of the righteous, and obviously in the Gospels you, you, you have the the Jews who the enemies of Jesus um, very often claim to be the children of Abraham. They see themselves as the children of Abraham, and Jesus says, that, you know, "If you were, if you were children of Abraham, you'd believe me." Mm. Um, so, if you like, uh, these people who who thought that they were going to, who, who were looking forward to Abraham's bosom, uh, living with Abraham in this paradise to come, uh, Jesus, if you like, turns the tables on them and says, "Look, people who you least expect." Are going to be in Abraham's bosom, and you yourselves are not going to be there. So it's just a, it really it's a, it's a a Jewish metaphor, I think, for for what we'll call uh, heaven. Yeah, yeah. It's almost just like an idiom that they might have been familiar with. Yeah. It's yeah. completely foreign to us, but of course we have all sorts of yeah. sayings like that that we say that you know would be lost on on a on a different culture. Um, okay. Um, yeah, so you also have a whole chapter dedicated to, to hell. And, um, and you know, that's also another one of those topics. I didn't really quite ever hear anything other than e- eternal torment, um, probably until a few years back as well. Um, so you basically covered, you know, from, from my memory um, – kind of the concepts of eternal torment and then, um, I, I guess, a, like a, a terminal punishment. Um, and uh, what, what's, your, what's your conclusion um, on, on your understanding of, of hell? I, I, again, I, I came to it with a, with a very open mind and that I was, I was an inquirer wanting to see, did the Bible actually teach what I've been led to believe and I'd obviously been led to believe in eternal torment so like that that's the traditional sort of evangelical approach and um, I was sort of shocked and surprised when I found out that, that some evangelicals didn't actually believe that uh, so I suppose I was wanting to go and see okay um, why did they not believe that are there is there, is there good biblical justification for uh, an alternative point of view uh, and it turns out today, like there, there are really two alternative points of view. Uh, there's eternal punishment, annihilationism uh, point of view, uh, which uh, an increasing number of evangelicals uh, have um, uh, come to hold. Uh, and then there's the what I'll call the restorations position uh, or evangelical universalism, which is basically uh, hell. Uh, it's real. It's conscious punishment but it's not necessarily eternal it's only eternal until the person in hell actually repents uh, and once they repent uh, they'll be if you like left out of hell and brought into uh, heaven mm. um, but in the chapter that I wrote on hell I, I, I limited it to the, the first of those options I wanted to sort of focus on the, the restoration position when I dealt with heaven uh, so I, I didn't really deal with hell in that chapter um, uh, on hell itself. I, I, I didn't deal with the, the 
Stephen Jarvis Universalist there. Uh, I dealt more with uh, those who argue really that um, the wages of sin is death. Uh, very clear uh, scriptural verse. Uh, and death means death. It doesn't mean anything else. It doesn't mean eternal death in the sense of a, an ongoing existence. It just means death of termination, sort of terminal judgment. Um, again, I've been working. Work, I've been working on this ever since. In fact, I've just finished writing a, a another piece on this uh, for a book on two views of hell. Mm. Um, and I think I'd have to acknowledge, and I think I acknowledge in the book, but I'd have to acknowledge um, that. If you were just using the Old Testament, uh, there's, there'd be a pretty strong argument for reading hell as simply term eternal judgment. Um, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Uh, they were destroyed by fire, uh, but they were destroyed. Uh, they, they didn't get sent to some kind of um, ongoing hell. Uh, right. they, they basically were destroyed and burnt up. Uh, and time and again in the Old Testament, that's the picture you get. In fact, that there are very few texts that suggest anything other than what we'll call terminal uh, judgment. So God is a consuming fire, and that consuming fire does what consuming fire does. It consumes, so it destroys. Um, so judgment in the Old Testament certainly is presented in that way. Uh, so when you look at examples of judgment in the Old Testament, uh, it does seem to be terminal in that sense. Uh, two of the texts that are used really to uh, argue for eternal conscious torment from the Old Testament, uh, you've got the last verse of Isaiah, uh, and you've got um, uh, Daniel uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 3, uh, I think it's verse 3 or verse 2. Um, again, I think uh, the traditional position has made too much of those verses. Uh, because when you look at the verse in Isaiah, the very end of Isaiah, the picture there is not of conscious human beings being burnt in some kind of eternal flame forever and ever. Mm. Uh, that's not the picture in Isaiah 66 at all. The picture in Isaiah 66 is of dead human beings, corpses, uh, being consumed by um, worms and flames that never go out so you've got worms that never die and you've got flames that never go out but what both those things are um consuming if you like are corpses not conscious human beings sure yeah um so so traditionally those two verses have been used by um traditional um, evangelicals to support the idea of eternal conscious torment uh, i'm not sure that they do uh, I think that um, you can make you, you, like you can point out that the the worms don't need to never die, and the flames don't need to keep on burning forever, right. uh, unless unless the work that they're doing is sort of ongoing and needs to, to keep going for long, you know, ever after. So you can make yeah. a kind of argument, uh, and I think. Uh, that's, that's a valid argument, you know, that the worm doesn't die and the flames don't go out. Uh, but it doesn't, I think, um, resolve the main point, which is in Isaiah 66, what those worms are working on, what the fire is working on, are corpses. They're not conscious human beings. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Daniel talks about everlasting shame. He doesn't go on to explain what that everlasting shame uh, is going to be like. Uh, so I think it's too much to argue from Daniel 12, as it's too much to argue from Isaiah 66, eternal conscious torment. Now, I think that the, when, when you get the New Testament, it gets much more complex because, number one, those images, those Old Testament images of fire consuming the enemies of God, is certainly, that, those images are certainly picked up in the New Testament and, and used by both Jesus and the apostles. So those, those are images in the Old Testament that are picked up and used in the New Testament. But what I find when you get to the New Testament is that they are not just used and, if you like, rubber stamped. Uh, they are expanded uh, and the images are not just of, of dead corpses being you know, destroyed uh, and annihilated. Uh, you've got pictures of... Um, Again, associated with 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 fire and so on of um, willing and gnashing of teeth, mm-hmm. uh, which seems to suggest that 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 this fire is not just going to annihilate people, because if you're going to annihilate people, there's not going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At least, at the very least, there's not going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth very long, because yeah. as we know, fire, fire can consume sure. people pretty quickly. Sure. Um, the other thing is that. Um, Again, Revelation uh, speaks of the uh, chapter fourteen, uh, the fate of the, the the lost there, and talks about the smoke of their torment going up forever. Now you could argue just the smoke is going up forever, but I think implicitly there's it's suggesting that it's not just smoke is going up forever; it's going up forever because the torment's ongoing. Again, if the torment was just sort of terminal. The smoke of that torment would need to keep on going up forever. Uh, so sure. that suggests, but on that verse alone, really, that suggests uh, some idea of um, eternal torment. Certainly, the devil, uh, Satan, uh, whatever we read about his fate, uh, we're told that his fate, uh, those that are going to be cast into the, the, the lake of fire, are going to be tormented forever and ever. And it's not just forever, it's forever and ever, which is a very emphatic way of saying this. Uh, so the, the, the devil's fate is going to be torment forever and ever. That's what Revelation clearly teaches, and I don't think there's, there's any doubt about that. Uh, then you go back to, to Matthew 25, um, and we're told that, that the, the fate of the, the, the goats, as opposed to the fate of the sheep, Fate of the goats, those who uh, uh, are lost, uh, is uh, they're going to suffer the same fate as the devil and his angels, the fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So when you put all those texts together, you do get the impression, uh, a very clear, a very strong impression, that the New Testament teaches not just the, the annihilation of, of the, the lost, but the ongoing punishment of the lost. Mm. Uh, and that ongoing punishment they will share with the devil. Uh, and his minions. Hmm. Um, now again, I suppose it brings into question: uh, Is the devil uh, immortal? Um, certainly, uh, <laughs> he, he seems to be. He, cer- he certainly seems to be less mortal than human beings, and that he's he's been around for a very long time. Yeah. So yeah. presumably, the supernatural beings like the devil and. Uh, as angels are in, in some sense immortal uh, and that will allow them to be um, 
tormented forever and ever. Um, presumably then, those who share that fate of their human beings, they either have to be sustained by God miraculously, so God will sustain them, or else when they're resurrected, their resurrected bodies will have uh, some kind of immortal capacity that our sure. present bodies don't. Yeah. Uh, but either way, either God has to give them uh, God, God has to give them the capacity to, to endure forever if they're going to be um, tormented forever and punished forever. Yeah. Um, so the question is, will God do that? Can we can we conceive of a God who who, who thinks that's just and that puts in the whole question of the justice of eternal torment? Uh, the main argument against eternal torment, I think, really is that uh, we've only committed a finite number of sins. Hmm. So if we even the worst of us has only committed a finite number of sins. Therefore, why should God punish us infinitely, indefinitely, forever and ever? That doesn't seem to to be just. That doesn't seem to be fair. That's the main argument really against uh, the traditional position. Mm. Yeah. No. Yeah. I've heard. I've heard both both positions, um, and it can argue be argued very strongly on, on both sides. Um, you know, I, I certainly can stomach the concept of terminal punishment much more. Um, I think I think I think most people could. <laughs> yeah. In fact, there's something wrong if you couldn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So, like, I I want to favor that, but as you mentioned, the you know, the, it's it's really difficult to get past those verses in the New Testament. There's really there's just not a lot of room there. Um, just looking at those verses, unless you're arguing it from, you know, from a perspective, um, like like one like ones that you maybe just put forward, and I've heard some good ones, but uh, it, it's it's a, it's a it's it's a it's a fascinating topic. It's one that um, um, I think it, it's worth looking into. I, I, when I first heard the concept of terminal punishment, I thought that was just. Um, heresy really uh but then you know i saw well there there's 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 a biblical there's, there's a biblical um you know way of coming to that understanding it's not just our sensitivities you know n- not wanting to, to to believe in it um hmm, yeah okay um but you tend to favor uh the the eternal punishment is, is that kind of what i'm gathering well, favor might be too strong, but certainly I find it hard not to believe in it because I find it hard to get around those verses that yeah. seem to suggest that you know, that I'm nothing else. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I got you. Um, but if it wasn't for those verses, I think I would say yes. Terminal terminal punishment is exactly what the Bible teaches. Yeah. Yeah. But I think there are, there are just a number of verses that that are a sticking point for me that. Um, it's hard to actually. I think the other second point really is that the justice issue. Um, like, does the Bible really teach that people who have committed monstrous atrocities are going to get the exact same punishment as as I feel like good living people who just simply have turned their back on God or turned their back on Christ? It's the same punishment for all. Uh, yeah. Is, or is there divine justice? So the Hitlers and the Pol Pots and so on of this world, are they going to be punished just the same way as your average Joe? Or will God's justice de- demand that, that that person gets, you know, 
be sort of worse treatment uh, than, uh, if you like, worse torment than someone who hasn't. Like, I think any kind of torment, any kind of everlasting torment would be horrible. Uh, it wouldn't be pleasant. No, uh, no. But I think that I think that Jesus does seem to indicate that that uh, some people will be beaten with many blows and some with fewer blows. Um, sure. And that seems to suggest that there are degrees of punishment even in hell. Yeah. Uh, so, like, no one wants to go there at all. Yeah. Uh, it's a, a very unpleasant place, but I think it'll be even more unpleasant for some people than for others. Yeah. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And that kind of brings me to my next question I was going to ask um, about uh, about judgment. Um, because, uh, you know, of course, we're kind of talking about judgment for, for non-believers now. Um, I'd like to compare and contrast that to judgment for believers. Um, you know, what, what does that look like? Because it, it seems to also uh, be an aspect, just like you described, there being varying degrees of punishment in hell, seem to be varying degrees of rewards in heaven. So, um, what you know, how does judgment for a believer... You know, outside of maybe just like your your destination, how does that differ uh, for a believer or non a non believer? Uh, quite honestly, I'm not sure, Samuel. Uh, I used to think that there were rewards in heaven, just as there are degrees of punishment in hell. Uh, when I did this research, uh, I came um, to the conclusion that there isn't so much evidence for degrees of reward in heaven. Uh, there's certainly evidence for degrees of responsibility. Um, but I'm not sure if that's the same thing as degrees of reward. Mm. Uh, the, the crown of life is what we're promised. Uh, everlasting life is what we're promised. Um, uh, some people, uh, Paul says, will be saved by the skin of their teeth. Right. Um, uh, again, I'm not sure what, what, it, what it means eternally for someone who has been saved by the skin of their teeth. Is their eternal future going to be significantly different from the person who has been fully dedicated to serving Jesus their whole life? Uh, I'm not just sure. Like I just, I don't think the Bible is clear enough on that one. Yeah. Um, uh, like, in a, in a sense, we're, look, we're looking forward to um, uh, a place where there'll be no more sin, uh, no more death. And no more pain, and so on. So all of every redeemed person will sh- will share that experience. Um, so heaven will be heaven for whoever's there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. It'll, 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 it'll be uh, it'll be a wonderful, blessed place. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I don't want to try do away from that, but I'm just I'm, I'm not sure what what. If, if there are some kind of let's put it rewards, what those rewards look like in the, the new heaven, the new earth, um, is it, um, I think we need to be careful. We don't we don't sort of think sort of very materialistically. Yeah, sure. Uh, we tend to we tend to think very materialistically in terms of rewards and so on. But maybe 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 heavenly rewards are very different from mm. from our concept, or anything we can even imagine. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and, uh, yeah, just heaven in general, um, you know, we have a lot of answers, but, of course, there's still there's still 
questions, you know, for, for, for many people as well. Um, so, you know, I, I, I like that, um, that you leave room for, for, for wonder, I, I suppose. Um, yeah. this will be, um, my last question, um, kind of going back to where we started about the intermediate state. Um, what, what is your thoughts, takes on, uh, near-death experiences. Yeah, I, again, when I was doing the research for the book, I, I had to read some of that to see what what they were saying and so on. I, I came to the conclusion, um, mainly on the on the basis of the, the sort of the medical uh, opinion uh, on this, that what people describe as near-death experiences uh, can be explained medically. Um, and therefore, I wasn't convinced that you know you could have a um, sort of a near-death experience where you where you go to heaven for a day or go to heaven for an hour or two or whatever uh, the case may be. Um, like one of the things I found quite interesting when I was doing the research was that near-death experiences are claimed not just by Christians but by um, sure. people of all. And, and that made me think that whatever whatever they're talking about, it's probably some kind of common thing. Well, maybe common is the wrong way to describe it, but what I mean by common, I mean it's common to all people, whether they're religious or irreligious, whether they're Christian or atheist and so on. Uh, that, that that experience they're describing is something, something that um, uh, I think can be medically explained hmm. uh, in terms of what's going on in the brain. Uh, when your heart starts beating and so on, so I, I think that there's a, there is a medical explanation to the kind of experience that people are describing as near death experiences. Um, uh, so can can you have a can you have a, a sort of a, a foretaste of heaven or hell and then come back come back from the brink? Um, uh, I'm not sure you can. Um, again. Um, Obviously, obviously, Samuel had a near-death experience, but it wasn't a near-death experience. It was a, a death experience, and he comes back. Uh, he's brought back to talk to Saul. Um, so that's, if you like, a, a biblical example of a... But it's not really a near-death experience. Yeah. The near-death experience tends to be something that it's, it's a fleeting thing. It's mm. somebody in the in the throes of death has this experience of, of a, you know, an extra bodily experience and so on, mm. um, where they're sort of taken out of the... You know, they're, sh- they're human shell, and they can see what's going on in the room. Uh, again, maybe it's just the the sceptic in me, but that probably could be explained in terms of uh, audible perceptions and so on, things that that are going on around them. Um, so I'm, I'm just I'm just not convinced that uh, the claim near death experiences are actual uh, experiences of heaven uh, or the afterlife. Sure. So I don't want to rule them out, but I just if there is a medical explanation to them, which I think there is, I don't want to sort of rule them all in. So could someone have a near-death experience? I'm not too sure. I don't know. Um, uh, maybe they could, um, uh, but if it turns out that they couldn't, uh, I'd not be surprised. Uh, uh, I, I, Again, I, th- I think those those common 
they claim near-death experiences are probably to be explained medically rather than explained spiritually. Sure. But can, can, can someone have a, a spiritual experience through that? I think they can. So, so some people, after their near-death experience, um, uh, uh, come to, to faith. Yeah. Uh, but interestingly, a lot of people don't. Yeah. Which I find bizarre that they've had this near-death experience, and even that doesn't convince them to to get right with God. Well, um, uh, I suppose it does tie in with with what Jesus said. Uh, you know, even if someone were to come back from the dead, they wouldn't believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's interesting because I uh, I think I read one book book about it. I've heard you know several accounts. Um, like I've had at least one guest who, who had had an experience that shared his. Because um, you have it, you have it, people like you said from all different backgrounds, who, all different beliefs. Um, um, you know, kind of like the one common thing is the light in the tunnel. Um, yeah. And uh, but uh, you know, you have people that have like a heavenly experience, but then you also have people that have a hellish experience. And yeah. oddly, those those are the people that tend to end up having a, like a, a life change afterwards. The ones that have like a near, uh, like a hellish experience and they, they get scared straight. Um, but, uh, you know, you got me thinking when you started talking about biblical examples. Um, I'm curious what you think about, uh, you know, Paul said he was taken, uh, to the third heaven. Um, you know, some people would say that's a near death experience because he, uh, was near death. Um, you know, I forget which chapter in acts, but, you know, they would attribute that, you know, near death experience, you know, him being near death in acts and then him yeah. recalling the third heaven. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that one because that, I think that is actually a, a good example of where, where Paul, when he's describing it, says he doesn't know if it was in the body or out of the body. Yeah. Uh, so to me, that, to me that's an argument for two things. It's an argument for an interim state. Uh, like Paul obviously believed that there was, there was a possibility of an interim state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also would be an argument then for you could have a near-death experience uh, if Paul wasn't sure. Uh, if, if, yes, if that experience happened uh, after one of his stonings, which is, is uh, I think, fairly likely that, that that's what he's talking about uh, when he had that you know, out-of-body experience, uh, then, then I suppose that that is a biblical example uh, of uh, a near-death experience. For yeah, uh, I kind of thought about uh, Stephen when he was being stoned as well. He said before before he died, he said he could see Jesus. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and that yeah. was you know he was clearly alive when that happened. So yeah. you could you could say I that he was uh, near death. That would be maybe an example of, of the curtain being sort of pulled away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you're drawn, drawn back. Uh, and again, yeah. So so is that what we mean by near death experiences, where where people you know <laughs> some people came to see ghosts in this life. Uh, some people have that sort of experience, you know, in the throes of death. Yeah. And, and come back from it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So, I, like, I wouldn't rule it out, but I, I just, I'd go back to the, I think a lot of them could be explained neurologically. Sure. And therefore, yeah. if, there, if they, it can be explained neurologically, I think we need to be very careful uh, that we don't make too much of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, um, Paul, I'm glad you mentioned the Paul case because that, that's a, a good example of uh, where Paul's not not quite sure, you know, <laughs> whether he was alive or dead when, when he had that sort of experience. Yeah, yeah, and I agree. With you. It could be it could be a, a bit of both, you know, and yeah. you know, people tend to get you know 
they just are, are, are crazed for a, a near-death experience in a story and they want to build doctrine on it. And, you know, there's all sorts of books that you can buy and movies about the, about the books. And um, I, I had a near-death experience of a different kind before Christmas. Um, I, I just after the lockdown ended here, um, uh, the week after lockdown, I uh, ended up in hospital mm. um, for heart surgery. Um, uh, my, I think my main artery was 90% blocked. Mm. Um, and whenever the surgeon was talking about me, to me about the operation they was going to do, so I said that the, the, the success rate is really good. I said, what, what, what is it? Uh, I said, well, only one every 200 don't make it. And I was expecting, because we're all talking about, about AstraZeneca at the time, and, and they're talking about one every 200,000 or one, you know, yeah. big, even bigger fingers, my mouth just fell when he said one every 200, because I thought, that, 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 yeah. that's not as hopeful as I was hoping he was yeah. going to say. <laughs> Our definitions are very good, it's different, yeah. But why, why I mention it, um, whenever, he, whenever they told me that and I was going to go in for the, this heart surgery that I mightn't have come through, um, uh, one of the first things I started doing was preparing my funeral service, at least getting getting ready for, uh, you know, getting the hymns and so on chosen and things like that. And God used it really wonderfully to, to encourage me at that time because, like, I was basically faced with the prospect that I think the next day, really, I was going into surgery and I mightn't come out of it. Um, so with that in mind, you know, like, I, I basically uh, started looking at the hymns I would use. You know, I'd like to have sung at the funeral and things like that. Um, both sort of letters to, to my wife and boys and so on and my mother um, and just sort of to uh, encourage them because I knew that everybody was really quite tense and uh, stressed at the time but why I mention this like God gave me such a great sense of peace uh, as, as I was sort of faced with the with potential imminent death and I think that's the most important thing like I, hopefully that comes across in the, in the book uh, the, the most important thing about death and the afterlife is that whatever you think about it, that we're ready for it, we're prepared for it. Mm. So that if death comes suddenly or slowly, whenever it comes, uh, we know that we're right with God. We know that we're peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got that assurance that, that, that God will, will take us safe into his everlasting arms. Mm. Um, I think that, that, that's the thing that I'd want to sort of leave people with uh, absolutely uh, make sure that they're they're right with god and uh, ready for death and the afterlife sure <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean that's our that's our blessed hope yeah so for anyone listening that that doesn't have that assurance i mean you know, don't wait. Um, you know, you, you, you can make, make that, uh, make that decision today. That's, that's fantastic. Um, thank you. For, thank you for sharing your, your personal experience with that and, and, and tying this episode up and you're nice with the nice and neat with the bow there. That's a, that's a cherry on top. Um, um, yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I think that, that is, um, one one thing, uh, you know, that's central to the gospel, and as as a believer, that uh, death has no no power of us, and we have nothing to fear. In fact, it's it's, um, you know, Paul said it was that he was sort of torn, you know, because he you know it, it, was, it was better to be w- with Christ. Um, so, uh, and that, that, that's fantastic. So, thank you so much uh, for for coming on and and for sharing and for writing the book. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Samuel. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll invite you to kind of share, you know, how people can get in touch with you or where they can buy your buy your books, um, and then you can close us out in prayer. Sure. Uh, 
Okay. Um, well, the, probably the easiest way to, to get in touch with me is through uh, my email address at Moore College, um, which is just paul.williamson at Moore, M-O-O-R-E dot E-D-U dot A-U. Um, so, yeah, and uh, if they wanted to get a copy of the book, um, uh, probably the, the easiest way would be through the like of um, uh, Amazon. Um, uh, yeah. I guess not. I've not heard of that, but I'll put a link for the listener. Uh, I'll put a link yeah. for the book. Uh, so if they're interested, they, they can pick it up yep. in, the, in the show notes. Okay. Oh, I ah, yeah, close this out. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for uh, bringing uh, life and immortality to hope uh, and life through the gospel. And we uh, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the one who uh, has uh, gone through death and has uh, been raised from the dead and who has guaranteed that hope of eternal life for everyone who believes. And Father, we pray that you might indeed help each of us as we think about the future, as we think about our personal future, death and uh, the afterlife, that you might help us to put our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ him to know is life eternal. In his name we pray. Amen. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you enjoyed. If you did, make sure to share this with somebody you know. Like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. If you're listening on your favorite podcasting app, leave us a rating and review. You can email me at the Weird Christian Podcast at gmail.com. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.